there are some opening lines in literature they are so classic that even if you've not read the book, you would recognize them. I'm going to invite a little bit of participation this morning. I'm going to read a line, opening line from a book, and if you know it, say the name, okay? The name of the book. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Tale of Two Cities. Charles Dickens, 1859. Call me Ishmael. Moe, this guy, I don't even know you, but you got it. 1851, Herman Melville. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. The hobbit. J.R.R. Tolkien. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 1952, C.S. Lewis. You better not never tell nobody but God. The Color Purple. 1981, Alice Walker. For the millennials in the room, Mr. and Miss Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Harry Potter. And the Sorcerer's Stone, 1998, J.K. Rowling. There's some opening lines in literature they are so classic. Even if you've not read the book, you recognize them. They're so iconic, you would recognize if somebody misquoted them. Now, the Bible, no surprise, is the best-selling book of all time. Over five billion sold, distributed. And no surprise, again, it has an unmistakable opening line. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Genesis is no ordinary book. It's the inspired word of God. It's also unique because it captures in its first lines the very first words spoken to creation. In fact, it is by speaking that God creates. You see, Genesis 1.1, it's not just an opening line. It is the opening line to the book capturing God's creative acts in history. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's so iconic. If somebody tweaked it, you would know. The Apostle John begins his gospel, his account of Jesus Christ with a quotation, a reference to Genesis 1. Now you would expect him to quote it as such, but he doesn't. He modifies it in a sense. Now this is not because John has made a mistake it's not because there's error in Genesis 1. It's because John is pulling back the veil on creation. On this side of the incarnation, under the inspiration of the Spirit, John is telling us more than Moses understood. It's not just in the beginning God created, but in the beginning was the Word. So John is doing something masterful. He's taking something familiar to draw us in, and yet he's showing us we don't even know the half of it. Now, why is he doing this? When you think about the Gospels, they're like origin stories. Okay, we love origin stories, if you like, maybe the Marvel films. They're telling us about who Jesus is, especially his earthly life and ministry. What John is going to do is he's going to take us even further back. He's going to show us that if we're going to rightly grasp Jesus, we need to understand first who he is in eternity. We need to understand his relationship with the Father, his relationship with the created order. We need to understand 
where he came from before we can rightly grasp why he came. So drawing from Genesis 1, John is going to take us back to the beginning that we might understand who Jesus is. If you have your Bibles, I will invite you to turn with me to the book of John. John chapter 1. Today, all my jokes about lapping Joshua come to an end. (laughs) Yes, it does. We will be here for a while. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, we have pew Bibles. You can find them on the end of the rows. It's John 1 is found on 941 in the pew Bibles. And if you don't have a Bible, not you don't have a CSB. If you don't have a Bible, that is our gift to you. Merry Christmas. I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. In Him was life, and that life was the light of men. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness does not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory. The glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. Indeed, we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. Amen. You can be seated. John unique among the gospel writers, begins with a prologue. He's giving us a framework for reading and understanding the gospel. So fundamental for John, if you're going to get Jesus' identity right, you need to understand who he is as the God-man. You need to begin with, first, him as God. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? That's a question we'll ask this morning. We'll see four things in the text, Lord willing. One, if you're taking notes, He is God's eternal word. Who is Jesus? He is God's eternal word. Second, he is God's creative word. Third, he is God's saving word. And fourth, he is God's revealing word. Who is Jesus? He is God's eternal word. He is God's creative word, he is God's saving word, and he is God's revealing word. 
Said differently, he is God the Son, he is the creator, he is the savior, and he is the revealer, or really the revelation of God. First, Jesus is God's eternal word. This is my, I'll just tell you on the front end, this is my longest of the four points. It's probably the most dense point I have or ever will preach. (laughs) So hold on to your Bibles. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. Now, in theology, there are certain principles or rules that govern our thinking or doctrinal formulation. We find the first and most important of these principles or rules in Genesis 1.1. It's called the creator-creature distinction. If you want to visualize it on a sheet of paper, you would draw a line down the middle. On the one side, you would write God. And on the other side, you would write creation, Literally everything else that is not God. So on the one side we have the transcendent God who is a category unto himself. We have a line representing an infinite gap. And then we have everything else. Right? Time, space, atoms, weight, rabbits, lizards, mountains, galaxies, cookies, ballet slippers, Jordans, golf balls, books. Someone say something? Santa? Santa. Spoiler alert. I'm just kidding. Creation and the creator are and always will be distinct. Now John, a monotheistic Jew, he would have understood this better than anyone else. The first of the ten commandments or words found in Exodus 20 verse 3, do not have other gods besides me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is not the first among many gods. He is the only God. And then the great Shema, Deuteronomy 6, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. God is categorically distinct, metaphysically distinct, one God and he is one. As such, he alone is worthy of our complete love and worship, worthy of our adoration and affection, our service. You see, to make an idol, it's to take something that's created, be it money or sex, relationships, it's to take something that's created, a creature, and to have it traverse the gap to try to put it in the category of God. John knows there's one God and he is one. This is what makes his opening, coming from a Jew, so scandalous even. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. To this John says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. That is to say before creation, before there was a line with anything on the other side, Before time itself, at the beginning of time, the word was with God. Now, how can it be possible if we only have these two categories? God and not God, creator and creatures. Well, John goes on, not only was the word with God, look at the end of verse 1, and the word was God. It's not just that the word was there in the beginning, it's that there's no beginning for the word. This is because he is God. You're probably familiar with the term Arianism. 
In 325, Arius was condemned as a heretic at the Council of Nicaea. He taught that the sun was created. So he's special, almost kind of like a demigod in a category of kind of deity, but not God. Okay? He's created. In fact, him and his followers, they sang a song. There was a time when the sun was not. That was like their tag in their worship service. There was a time when the sun was not. (laughs) We're singing like Christ is mine forevermore. They're singing, there was a time when the sun was not. This is kind of an aside. This is why we're picky about the songs we sing, about who writes the songs that we sing. They teach us and they involve us in the teaching. Okay, Arius was teaching, there was a time when the sun was not. John is saying there is no beginning for the word because he is God. He is unmistakably putting Jesus on the category of God. So yes, as we think about Jesus, his story, his identity is wrapped up in the story of humanity, even more particularly so in the story of Israel as he comes as their Messiah. We'll see that in verse 14. But if you're going to get Jesus right, you have to understand that he is first God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John, unambiguously, is taking the identity, the category, the ontology of the one God, and he's applying it to Jesus. Now, we're not talking about two gods. We're talking about one God. The Lord is one. And yet the Word is distinct from God somehow. We see that he's with God. How is this possible? Well, in verse 18, if you look down, this helps us. John is, when he's using God here, he's making a reference to the Father. Verse 18 really uh, ends the prologue as he begins it. No one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God, and is at the Father's side. He has revealed him. Okay, so put differently, no one has seen God the Father, but God the Son has revealed him. He is at his side. That is, he is with him. So the word is God, but he's distinct from God the Father. He is with the Father in the beginning. He reveals the Father in the incarnation. He proceeds from God as word. He is son of the Father. He is divine, but distinct. So what is their relationship? We can press a little further, not much further. John uses two images to help us understand in our kind of creaturely finitude. He gives us these two images as we grasp at the Father and Son's eternal relations. He employs the images of Word and Son. Word and Son. He is the eternal Word of God. He is the eternal begotten Son of the Father. I'm going to give you another one of these kind of principles, rules, and theology. Our language, when we speak about God, it's analogous, okay? It's truthful, it's accurate. God himself speaks to us in human language, but it's analogous. What that means is that there's similarity, and yet there's difference. So when we speak about the Son as Son, when we speak about him as Word, there's similarity to our reality, and yet there's difference. There's similarity against a backdrop of greater dissimilarity. So let me give you an example with the Son, To say that the son is son of the father, it speaks to his relationship, to his intimacy with the father. It speaks to his origin coming from the father. It speaks to his unity with the father. So there's similarity. He comes forth from the father eternally, but there's difference. Our fathers here on earth exist before kids, okay? I'm sure you realize this. Me first, then my four kids. 
And it is not so with God. The Father is eternal, the Son is eternal, the Spirit is eternal. Our sons, uh, they proceed materially from us, okay? This is not the case with God. He does, with the Son, he doesn't proceed materially from the Father. So he's eternally begotten, yes, but he's not made. He's not created. There's similarity, there's difference. But the image that John is really honing on is word, at least in the prologue. Think about the relationship between your words and you. Your words proceed from you. They begin in you first as an idea, such that your words reflect you. They're so closely tied to you that they image you. They're associated with you. Okay, if you say, we understand this, right? If you say the right things at work, you might get a promotion. If you say the wrong things at work, you might get fired. <laughs> we understand this in the home. If you say the wrong things at home, you might get in a fight with a roommate. You might sleep on the couch if you're married. We intuitively understand the, I'm sorry if my words hurt you, is a bad apology. No, you hurt me. Okay, our words reveal us. And if we speak about ourselves, our words especially reveal us. The word is the Father's perfect self-disclosure or self-reflection. This is why scripture elsewhere calls Christ the image of God. He is the word eternally proceeding forth the Father as his perfect self-image, self-understanding, self-reflection, yet he is distinct. Okay, so to put it more technically, the distinction between the Father and Son and of the Spirit, it's one of persons, not nature. They're the same in essence or whatness. In the words of the Nicene Creed, brothers and sisters, the creeds are helpful because the early church was grappling with these ideas. They're wrestling with it, and then they put forth in summary form what we find in Scripture in a type of grammar that we can use that's accurate and faithful. So we confess this about the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. So just as a word is distinct from a speaker or a son from a father, so too is God the Son distinct from God the Father. And yet, because he is the word of the Father, this one God, because he's the eternally begotten Son of the Father, they share the same identity, the same essence. They, along with the Spirit, are the one God. Okay, if your head, you know, spinning a little bit, you might recall our visual. On the one side, we have the transcendent creator, not a figment of our imagination, not constrained by what we can comprehend, not subject to our manipulation, not to be banished by the enlightenment. And then on the other side, we have all of creation, including our tiny minds. I promise you, from the perspective of God, the Trinity is not a problem. But I wonder, do you believe that? Are you skeptical about God's triune nature? Is it something you think about? Does it lead you to adoration and to worship? It ought to... With no trinity, there is no God, there is no life, there is no salvation. It is absolute reality. And so John begins with, who is Jesus? He brings us back to before the beginning. He is the eternal word of God, the eternally begotten son of the Father. He is also God's creative word. 
we now, what John is doing, he's making a movement outside of God as he is in himself turning toward creation. So we consider Jesus as God's creative word. Look at verse 3. All things were created through him, and apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. We see Jesus was not just there in the beginning. He was not just with the Father at the moment of creation. He's not like a toddler in the kitchen watching his parents do all the cooking. Jesus is active in creation. John puts it positively and negatively. Look at the text again. Positively, all things were created through him. Again, you think about our creator-creature visual, two categories, God and everything else. Everything on the side of creation, all of it was created through the word. Put negatively, look at the text again. Apart from him, not one thing was created that has been created. Meaning there's nothing, meaning there's not one thing on that list of creation that was not created through the Son. His activity in creation is comprehensive. It's universal. There is no existence or life apart from Jesus. And again, John is very intentionally using the image of word because he's drawing from the creation account. Within the life of God, the Son is the eternal word proceeding from the Father. In creation, God turns his attention to that which is not him and speaks the same word, this time bringing forth new life. Okay? God creates by speaking, which is to say he creates through his word, which is the Son. Think about Genesis 1 again. Then God said, okay, he's creating through his word, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 6, then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. Verse 9, then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. Verse 10, then God said, let the water swarm with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. 24, then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl in the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds. 26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. God creates through his word, which is his son. When God speaks, it's his creative power and will at work. The father creates through the son. This is important. Just as the father has never existed for a moment apart from the son and the spirit, so too the father never acts apart from the son and the spirit. Yes, God... The Father possesses all power as God, and yet he works through the Son and by the Spirit. We see this in the imagery at creation in Genesis 1, that God is speaking his word and his breath. His Spirit is there, active in creation, hovering over the waters. The Father speaks by creating, by creating and he breathes forth the Spirit. And so we see John is taking the title of God and creator. He's applying it directly to Christ. Friends, think about how, even now in this Christmas season, how meaningful that makes Advent. Advent, verse 14, that what Israel was waiting for was the arrival of God. The creator come to creation to save his people. All things were created through him. John goes on, verse 4, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. In him was life. That is, in Christ was life. You see, 
as God, the word is life. Life is in him. This is an important distinction. We have life. It's been given to us. God himself is life. God brings us into existence. He sustains us at every moment by the power of his word, Hebrews 1-2. God doesn't have life. He is life. Life is in him. This is why God can create. He doesn't make us out of lack or want or need. It is out of the fullness of his life. It is out of the plentitude of his being that he then creates freely that which is not him. Everything comes into life because Jesus gives it as a gift. Life is in Jesus, therefore he can give it. This is what's happening at creation. God is graciously, kindly bestowing life to to that which did not have it. So he's telling us that Jesus, life is in him, and then he says that he's the light of men. This is a little harder, I think, to understand. John is continuing to draw from the creation account the traditional understanding of this from Augustine to Calvin, is that what John is getting at is the idea that Jesus, as the word of God, is the revelation of God. Okay, God discloses himself through speaking. Because God created humanity by speaking the word, all of humanity is born with what we would call the light of reason. It's a gift from God because we were made through Christ, through his word. Okay, we're born with, or created with the light of reason, meaning Mankind knows there is a God. It's a gift from God. It's light. But as Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 22, for though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So we're created in Christ who is life, Because he himself is the light, we're given light. There's a sense in which we intuitively know that there's a God, and yet there is darkness. But John is eager to maintain that the light, some light still is there. Look at verse 5. That light shines in the darkness that is into our sin, into our rejection of God, into our willful ignorance. That light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So being created by Christ, we have the gift of life and light. We know there is a God. That light is darkened, but it doesn't overcome the light completely. Calvin puts it this way. Men are now widely distant from that perfectly holy nature with which they were originally endued. Because their understanding, which ought to have shed light in every direction, has been plunged in darkness and is wretchedly blind. But, he writes, amidst the thick darkness of the human mind remains sparks of brightness still shine. Okay, the spark of light is still there. It's not enough, as we'll see in verse 10, it's not enough that we would recognize or receive Christ on our own. There is this problem. Though Christ is the creator, though he gives life, though he is revelation, we reject God willfully. We do not recognize him. We do not receive him. We put out the light of reason in our own minds. In fact, when the light of the world came, we sought to snuff him out. Now, John continues this idea in verse 10. I'm just going to summarize verses 6 through 9 quickly for the sake of time. John the Baptist is not Jesus. There it is. (laughs) There it is. Amen. John the Baptist bore witness to the light, John is telling us. He's a precursor to the truth that is Jesus Christ. 
He was like a little lamp or candle against the glory of the Son that is Christ. He was one crying out in the wilderness compared to God's eternal word. The true light was coming, but it was not Jesus. Sorry, it was not John. So Jesus is the eternal word. He's God's creative word. And now we consider Jesus as God's saving word. Jesus is God's saving word. We see the problem made more clear in verse 10. He was in the world, that is, Jesus was in the world. The traditional reading of this, and I think this is how we're to understand it, Christ, before the incarnation, was in the world as God. The triune God is omnipresent. He was present in the world. And the world was created through him, which we just saw in verse 4. All of creation testifies to him. And yet, John says, the world did not recognize him. You see, we have enough of this light implanted in us that we know there is a God, and yet we're so twisted that whatever truth we gain from the light, we corrupt it. We exchange the creator for a creature. We fashion something after our own likeness or even worse. After the image of a creeping and crawling thing, we don't recognize God. We don't give thanks to God. We don't glorify God. We do not recognize him. How will God respond to the creation who has rebelled against him. Verse 11, he came to his own. But his own people did not receive him. No doubt creation in general, humanity in general did not receive Christ, but I think John has something more in mind. He's talking about the Jews. He came to his own people and they didn't receive him. Those who had the presence of God, the priesthood, the covenants of promise, those who had God's written word in the Old Testament, When the light came, they did not see him. When the word came, they didn't hear him. They rejected him. If anyone would have been in position to hear and to receive and to see, it would have been Israel. But like the nations, their minds were darkened. Brothers and sisters of Israel didn't receive Christ. Their creator, their promised Messiah, what hope is there for us? You see, because we are turned in on ourselves, because our lights are darkened, because we do not recognize God, because in fact we reject him when he comes. What we need is new creation life. We need God to speak once again, bringing us out of the darkness. What we need is precisely what God gives. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God, to those who believe in his name. God gives us sonship. He adopts us. We see in scripture that Adam was a son of God, is described as a son of God. Israel corporately is described as the son of God. We see this in Exodus 4.22. So Israel, God's human and corporate son, rejects the divine son when he comes, and in doing so, they give up their sonship. But to those who believe, those who have faith upon the word who became flesh to save sinners, those who receive the son receive his sonship. They are given the right to become children, John says. Now, no doubt, when we talk about the gospel, the heart of the gospel, the backbone of the gospel is justification, that we have sinned against God. We deserve to be punished, and God himself has dealt with the penalty in Jesus Christ. Christ bore what we deserved upon the tree. Justice has been satisfied. God gives it to us as a gift. We receive it by faith. 
okay? No justification, no gospel. But justification, in my mind, it's not the highest blessing of the gospel, right? If there's to be salvation, justice required the cross, love supplied it, but it was a means to an end, relationship with God. It is beyond restoration. We're given the gift of adoption. The eternal Son of God became one of us that we, the rebels, might share in his sonship. We are given his status, his relationship with the Father with all of its privileges and benefits. I want to plunge us back into Trinitarian mystery for just another moment, brief moment. I mentioned this once before, but the Father, the Son, the Spirit, they share the same identity. They each possess the same nature, meaning the Father is not essentially different from the Son. There's no difference, okay? What distinguishes the persons are their relations. We call these properties. What makes the Son unique within the Godhead, what distinguishes him is his property of sonship. It's that he's the Son of the Father, the only begotten Son. What is his by nature, he offers to us by grace. His Sonship. He gives everything to us. Brothers and sisters, you will not hear a more beautiful message, not today, not ever. The greatest gift offered to you this season will not be found under a tree, but in Christ Jesus. It is as we wrap ourselves in him that we receive him and all of his benefits, his righteousness, his kingdom, his sonship. He gives to us without measure. He doesn't withhold anything. It is out of the fullness of his grace that he gives us grace upon grace. He does not withhold for a second. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ Jesus, when the Father looks at you, he sees his children. He looks upon you with divine pleasure. He sees his heirs, his beloved, his prize. The son who is in the bosom of the father, verse 18, he hides us there with him, making us his brothers and sisters. The word became flesh that we might become a family. If you're here this morning and you don't understand yourself to be a Christian, I say this with love. Apart from believing in Jesus, you are not a child of God. But God wants you for a child. He sent his son to become a man, to live on our behalf, to die for our sins. He rose from the dead. He offers us the gift of life by grace. Receive it today. Any one of our members would be more than happy to talk with you about the gospel of Jesus Christ after the service. We see some don't recognize him, some reject him, some receive him by faith. Why? John pulls back the veil, this time on God's recreative work. Verse 13. Those who were made sons or who were adopted... It says, we were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. Two things here. One, we're not born of God by natural descent. So I want to speak to the children in particular. Being a child of your parent does not make you a child of God. 
do not make the same mistake that Israel did. You must receive the son by faith. I would encourage you to talk with your parents on the way home today about what it means to be a child of God, what it means to believe upon Jesus. Secondly, and back to our question about why some believe, our new birth has nothing to do, look at 13, with our will or our efforts. It is the will and work of God alone. Jess and I have four kids, Haddon, Pavey, Josie, Jane. Believe this or not, none of them asked us to make them. We didn't take any pre-birth surveys. No pre-existence opinions were offered. Haddon, Pavey, Josie, and Jane were born not by their will, but by the will of their parents. Similarly, we are given newness of life as a gift from God, not because of our works, not because of our will, not even because of our faith. God sovereignly and graciously gives life for there was once none, just as he did at creation. God speaks by his word and through his spirit, and he recreates. It's a gift of grace. Brothers and sisters, this should lead us to humility, to gratitude, that God himself has done for us what we could not. He has given life where there was death. He has given light where there was darkness, sonship where there was rebellion. God creates once again by his word and his spirit, calling us out of the chaos into new creation life. God is the one who saves from beginning to end. I'll say this too around the Christmas season, as no doubt we'll be with our families. Many of us will be with family members who are not Christians, and we have bought the lie that they are unsavable. Friends, God is sovereignly over salvation. That means we can pray to him. Just as he gave us newness of life, he can do it for our family and friends. We should pray and share the gospel toward that end, knowing that God is the one who makes his children. So who is Jesus? He is God. He is the creator. He is the savior. And he is God's revealing word. We come to our last point. Jesus is God's revealing word. He is God's revelation. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. See that God revealed himself in creation. He continues to reveal himself through creation. He revealed himself when he spoke to the prophets. He continues to reveal himself through the Old Testament scripture. But the fullness of the message came with Jesus. The author of Hebrews puts it this way. Long ago, God spoke to the ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. You see, what was a whisper in the Old Testament the eternal word is shouted forth in the new. The Father's perfect self-reflection and self-disclosure becomes flesh, which is to say he becomes man. Okay, to the mystery of the Trinity and salvation, John adds the incarnation. True God becomes true man. We confess this in the Chalcedonian Creed. That Jesus Christ is the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man of a reasonable soul and body. What it's stressing there is that Jesus became a human just like us in every way except for sin. So when John says that the word became flesh, he doesn't mean that the son put on like a, like a meat suit. <laughs> it's kind of a crude way to put it. Okay. 
He took a body and a soul. He became a human like us in every way except for sin. But John, I think, is using flesh here. It stands for all of humanity because it's stressing the unthinkable descent of God that the eternal word became flesh. Like the eternal word, the one who knows and speaks all things had to learn his name as a man. He's stressing the descent of God, that God becomes flesh. And John says he made his dwelling among us. Now, it's not clear in English, but in Greek, John is saying something like, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Okay, this is why John goes on to say, we observed his glory, the glory is the one and only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The tabernacle in the old covenant, before the temple, it was the place where God dwelt. Okay, the tabernacle is where you would go to meet with God. It's where you would go to worship God. It's where you would go for forgiveness of sins. It's where you would go to hear the word of God taught. The word enfleshed is God come to us. As God, he is the new temple in the presence of God. He is the high priest mediating God's presence to the world. He is the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. He is the prophet that speaks a better word. The shadows and types of the Old Testament, they fade away as the light and glory of God has dawned in Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. To have seen Christ, John says, is to have seen glory, the majesty, the splendor. It is to have seen the godness of God. To come face to face with Jesus is to come face to face with God become man. But we, John speaking of him and others who saw him, we didn't just observe him, we received from him. He didn't come to take but to give. Verse 16, indeed we have all received grace upon grace from his fullness. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. I think what John is saying here is that there was an initial grace given through Moses. There is greater grace and truth given through Jesus. You see, through the law, God graciously delivered Israel out of slavery. He graciously made them his people. He graciously, by speaking to them, revealed his character. He graciously showed them how they're to live. He graciously provided a sacrificial system for when they failed. The law was an act of God's grace. But we have received grace upon grace from the fullness of Jesus the law, in a sense, does stand in contrast to the gospel. We, in Christ, get the fullness of grace and truth because he fully possesses grace and truth. The temple is replaced by the walking and talking presence of the God-man. Sinful temporary priests are replaced by the perfect and permanent Lord. The constant reminder of sin through regular sacrifice is replaced by the once and for all sacrifice of the Lamb. The prophets give way to the eternal word in our midst the glory of the old covenant it has been set aside paul tells us second corinthians three thirteen, because something more glorious is here we now with unveiled faces behold the glory of god in christ this is because the glory of the son is the glory of the father to behold him is to behold god so no doubt God revealed himself in creation. He revealed himself more fully in the old covenant. He now delivers to us 
the fullest revelation of all, the eternal word become flesh. What everything else pointed to has arrived. To see him, to see the son, is to see the glory of the only son from the father. To see him is to see God. John couldn't be clear about who Jesus is. How are we to understand him? He is the eternal word. He was with God in the beginning. He is God. He is God's creative word. All things were made through him. He is God's saving word. He is the word enfleshed. Through him we receive adoption as sons and the fullness of grace and truth. And he is God's revealing word. He is God's perfect image and son become man. To see him, John is going to say in verse 18, is to see God. Verse 18, John says, no one has ever seen God. Now, you might be thinking about Old Testament saints like Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 6, seeing the train of God's robe. You might think of Moses seeing the backside of God. Old Testament saints were given creaturely manifestations of God. Okay? Newsflash, God doesn't have a backside. <laughs> he doesn't wear clothes. No robe. He doesn't have a body. He's a spirit. No human with their eyes have looked upon God in his essence. I promise you, you would not want to. It would mean destruction for the sinner. John is telling us, the one and only Son who is himself God and is at the Father's side, he has revealed him. I think this is maybe the most important thing that John is wanting to communicate to us through his entire book. That because the Son has come from the Father, he reveals the Father. More than that, he makes a way to the Father, the only way to the Father. He reveals him. He is the fullness of revelation because he himself is God. He was there in the beginning. He is our creator. He is our savior. To see him is to see God. It is what we long for even this day. To behold him not just by faith, but to see the lamb enthroned in all of his glory. To look upon the God man. May we continue to walk faithfully until that day. Let's pray. God, we do praise you that you sent your son, Emmanuel, God, with us. And that through him, you have revealed yourself to your people. We thank you that you have saved us out of our darkness, that the darkness has not held back the light. We thank you that you have given us newness of life, that you have given us the gift of faith and sonship, that you have made us your children. We pray, especially in this Christmas season, that as we think about Advent, that we would marvel at the God who became flesh to save sinners, that they might become his brothers and sisters. Would you help us to think well about your son? Would you help us to think well about you? May we glory in who you are as a triune God. May we glory in your son who became and is man today. It is in his name and by your spirit we pray. Amen. We now continue to reflect on themes that we heard in the text and the sermon in our next two hymns, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. You can find it on page 14 in your service guide. Verse 1, Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery in the dawning of the King. He, the theme of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness. 
Now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. And then in the hymn after that, we especially think about when we will be there with him. The third verse, when on that day the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be all glory be to Christ. Stand with me as we sing glory to our God. <laughs> 